This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Thank you all for coming in in a timely, fa- relatively timely fashion from our break. I am Laura Enriquez, and I teach in the Department of Sociology here at Berkeley. And it's my pleasure to introduce our speakers today. And let me just say briefly who they are, very briefly. Our first speaker will be Kirby Jones, and he is the president of Alamar Associates. If you would like to know more about his background, you can see it in the program. Our second speaker will be Mark Entwistle. He is the Director and Special Advisor for Acosta Capital. And our third speaker will be Paolo Spadoni, and he is an Assistant Professor of Political Science at Augusta State University. Uh, it's in Georgia, right? Yes. And uh, if you'd like to know more about any of our speakers, there's lots of information in the, uh, in the program. I thought we should get quickly to hear what they have to say. So... Without further ado, Kirby. And I will be uh, rigorous in maintaining us on schedule Perfect. so that we have time for questions. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, the last time I was here in Berkeley was in 1966. And I was working for the Peace Corps and it was Peace Corps Recruiting Week. It was also Black Power Week here, and we had a Peace Corps at a table in the, right outside of Spruill Hall. Berkeley at that time was sending more people into the Peace Corps than any other university in the country by, by leaps and bounds. Um, so I was, I was at my table and talking about the Peace Corps and got in an argument with a passerby, and the argument lasted about... I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes, attracted a crowd, and, and I was saying how wonderful the Peace Corps was, and this guy was saying how it was a tool of American imperialism and the CIA and everything else, and we sort of broke up, and that guy happened to be Jerry Rubin. <laughs> <laughs> and by the laughter, I could tell the age of a lot of people here. Um, but on Friday night in the Greek theater, Stokely Carmichael spoke. It was to, packed audience. On Saturday, Robert Kennedy spoke. So it was uh, quite a week in, in Berkeley, and, and at that time, it, it, Berkeley was occupying a very interesting role and in the center of a lot of activism in the United States, and that's a long, long history and tradition of political activism. And this conference, although not fitting into Black Power Week, um, uh, is another example. That's I want to thank the organizers and thank, thank all of you for coming. What I want to do a little bit 
in order to set these guys up, who are going to follow me, is talk a little bit about where the Cuban economy of 2012 comes from. How many people here have not been to Cuba? All right, how many of those who have been to Cuba, how many were in Cuba prior to the year 2000? Prior to uh, 1990? That's pretty good. Anybody in the 80s? <laughs> 70s? <laughs> and Saul and Wayne in the 60s and 50s? <laughs> I don't go back that far. I go back to the 70s. But the, what, we, what you heard a little bit from Julia this morning and what you're going to hear from, from these folks afterwards is the description of a, an economy and a, indeed a country which did not exist just a few years ago. Cuba has, uh, 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 has a long history of changing their economic structure. And I'm going to take maybe 100 years of history and, and boil it down to about a minute uh, to remind everybody that prior to 1959, it, it was the United States. It wasn't a colony, but it was close to it. We owned all the means of production. The mob controlled uh, a lot of the country. All the utilities and the, uh, the infrastructure was owned or run by the United States. Um, and so it, it was, um, uh, the United States played a commanding role. Then out of the mountains comes this guy, Fidel Castro. And so in the period of maybe one or two years, the United States disappeared. And Cuba had to essentially restructure uh, uh, 50, 60 years of, of a country which was based on one particular country. Uh, uh, and they got into bed with the Soviet Union. And so for the next 30 years, my dates may be a year or two off, but just for the, the sake of this, this conversation, all our eggs were in the Soviet Union basket in the same way that all our eggs had been in the U.S. basket. Then in 1990, the Soviet Union collapsed. And in many ways, was worse than what happened in 1960. But for, once again, Cuba had to change everything. The whole underpinning of their economy collapsed. Uh, there was a deep recession. Um, uh, the Comic-Con countries accounted for 85% of Cuban trade. Um, so the, the whole subsidization of Cuba by the Soviet Union ended. It was a, a uh, hard currency, free market world that, that, that was coming. Uh, and Cuba had to change in the same way that the countries of Eastern Europe had, had to change, but with one big difference. Cuba had to do this with no IMF money, no World Bank money, no Inter-American Development Bank money versus the other countries, including the, the republics of the former Soviet Union, who were getting hundreds of millions of dollars. Add to that, add to that the, uh, 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 their adversary 90 miles away, the most powerful country in the world, working against them. So it, it was a tough haul. Friends of mine in the fir those first five years were drinking sugar water for meals. It was a very difficult time. 1995 to 2010, uh, Cuba began developing new mechanisms. It was transitioned from what existed before. 
And to, uh, uh, since 2010, uh, there, there is a new economy, which Julie talked about this morning, and which you'll hear uh, a little bit about. So what, what do you see today? You see Cuba is, in a sense, still in transition, uh, still coming to grips with, with some of the, uh, the new way of doing things. Some things are remaining in total state control. <coughs> Education, health, the military, bulk food and medicines are bought entirely by the government. Um, Julia mentioned privatization. To slightly disagree for the sake of the argument, you could argue that Cuba is one of the most highly privatized countries in the region. If you define privatization as Cuba selling off um, some of its assets to other investors, then you look at the number of joint ventures and the mixed control and the amount of foreign investment, and you see uh, a tremendous change and foreign companies involved in basically every aspect and almost every product you have in Cuba. Not to mention the 500 companies around the world which, which have offices. This is a list of the products and the countries that some of which still work in Cuba, some of which don't, but you can look down into the, the depth and breadth of the involvement of foreign companies and other countries in Cuba which have moved in at a time when the United States has left a vacuum. And many of these companies from these countries are very happy that the U.S. is not there, believe me. Domestic ownership, back to privatization. Very recent, for the first time, Cubans are owning their own business. They're owning their own property. So what started out with some foreign investment finally now is getting into the, so you have local domestic ownership. Uh, and so what were previously state assets, including the barber shop, are, have been transferred to local ownership. Uh, the Cubans don't like the word privatization, uh, but that is essentially what happens. They have created Cuban companies. And a lot of people say, well, you do, you, so you do business with Cuba, you have to do business with the government because the government owns everything. Yes and no. Um, let's take an example for here of General Motors to, to explain a little bit how these companies work. General Motors has all these car brands. All of them fight for your business and my business. To General Motors, they don't care what you do as long as you buy a General Motors car. All these companies have their executive management. They're there to make a profit. They take their profits and they uh, pay them out in golden parachutes, executive bonuses, or to the millions of shareholders um, which, are, which are involved. Drop this model in, into Cuba. In the, take, take tourism. You have these five and other companies, Cuban companies, competing for your business. San Cristobal, Havana Tour, Gaviota, Cubanacan, all want you to travel and stay at their hotels, which they are managing, use their buses. So they are fighting for business. They have their executive management, and their job is to make a profit. What do they do with their profits? They don't pay executive bonuses. They don't pay golden parachutes. They pay to one shareholder. 
But in terms of the function of these companies, um, they function in no less a private sector way than the General Motors companies function in this country. And these companies exist now everywhere in energy. Sugar is one of the newest. The Ministry of Sugar is closed down. It's now a company which has to make... Uh, which has to make a profit, and they can keep 65% of their profits, 35% go to the shareholder, and their job is to make is to make money. Trade with the United States, which I want to mention just in passing, uh, there is trade. It is not a loophole. Uh, it is a law of the land. Uh, passed in 2000, uh, began in 2001. Uh, not an insignificant amount of trade, uh, and to some sectors in agricultural products, food, uh, it's been very important. Cuba has bought everything from rice, wheat, corn, soybeans, M&Ms, cookies, mayonnaise, wine, uh, telephone poles. But what rose to about a $780 million a year business is now down into the low 300s because of the regulations and because some of these foreign companies have moved in. The changes in Cuba. Raul gets a lot of credit. But those of you who were there in the 60s, 70s, and 80s will know that much of what you see today, one, did not exist then, and two, was started under Fidel. Foreign investment started under Fidel. The legalization of hard currency started under Fidel. The small businesses, the Paladares and the Casa Particulares, started under Fidel. Cuban companies uh, were created first by Fidel. Uh, subsidies were ended. Trade with the U.S. began under Fidel and diversification. Uh, think about it for, for a second. Cuba, the underpinning of Cuba's economy for centuries was sugar. Fidel essentially reached the wall, flipped a switch, and the sugar industry was essentially not closed down, but... Uh, <coughs> its preeminent role fell very fast. Why? Sugar was selling at six cents a pound. It cost more to make it and refine it than it did that you could recoup in selling it. And Fidel essentially said, why are, we, why are we doing this? We have to change. So with one flick of the switch, he, he closed down centuries of an economic dependence. That is not an insignificant uh, happening. Under Raul, a lot of what Fidel started has been expanded. And these guys are going to talk about it a lot. You've heard, and you heard about some of them, some of them this morning. Um, if you had asked me when I first went there in 1974 or through the 80s, whether I would see these things happening in the life of Cuba prior to all through the 70s and 80s, early 90s, I would have said you were crazy. That this is a different country uh, than it was uh, just a few years ago. They are new to this process. When I worked at the World Bank, I got involved in the privatization efforts in, in the republics of the former Soviet Union. Uh, and they started with bakeries. The first thing that was privatized in Russia was a bakery, not a hairdresser, as was the case in Cuba. 
There in Russia, you had a population which was thinking one way for 70 years. Enrolled the Harvard economists, funded by USAID, saying, think a different way. Not easy, and it was not successful. And what you see in Cuba under Raul, yes, from the U.S. point of view, from our point of view, we like politicians, heads of state, to make big announcements. I am announcing this new policy. We are going to do this. Cuba has a different style. They, they, they trial and test things out outside of Havana in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the rural areas to see if some things work. Uh, and they say over and over again, we're going to do it our way. And our way and our timetable is not your timetable, particularly in the United States. Transitions well underway. Changes in Cuba. New generation. Who will come after Raul? One, there is a process for picking the next, for picking a head of state. But you look at the ministries. You look at the vice ministers. You look at people occupying now uh, high levels um, of authority. They are the younger generation. And the question comes in, of course, which, who is going to emerge as the next head of state? That I don't know. But that new generation forms part of the institutionalization of this process. And it's not just that new generation. It's also all those companies that from those countries that have investments in Cuba, they've got a lot of money involved. And unlike... Eastern Europe, there was where there's no no foreign investment or very little foreign. It is the this community in whose interest stability is because of the money involved, and so you have a new generation which is uh, not all in place, but a lot of them are in place. You have a foreign community uh, which has a vested interest now in this economic and financial success of Cuba. Um, so that institutionalization will exist without a Castro. If Raul and Fidel died tomorrow, those companies would still have their investments. People would still go to work. The structures, are there. <coughs> the struct, not all of them, obviously. And there's more to do, more reforms to do, but the fundamental structures and the fundamental direction is there. So the post-Castro era, we are seeing the post-Castro era. Who would have ever expected that Fidel would voluntarily step down? Oh, no, he's <coughs> going to stay forever. He's going to hang on forever. Right? Well, he didn't. Um, um, so, um, big butt. <laughs> what will the U.S. do? And... Uh, <coughs> At one point, at some one point, I think this was true uh, through the 70s and 80s, early, uh, up until the early 90s, the U.S. was very important to Cuba, very important. But since the entrance of all these other countries, the activity from, emanating from all these other countries, with the Brazilians and the Chinese pumping in hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, Cuba is, yes, is used to this embargo. They're accustomed to it. They deal with it. Um, but 
Their bread is buttered by Brazil and China and Canada and Spain. And all the talk of if you do this, we will think about doing that. I can tell you from talking to people, the Cubans are up to here. That doesn't work anymore. 44 senators sent a letter asking for the release of Alan Gross. What can those 44 senators do for Cuba? They aren't even a majority in the Senate. And whereas before, Cuba did, in the 70s, release political prisoners. Um, they returned uh, aircraft and monies and, and this, that, and the other thing, all because that will help uh, a, a process of normalization. It never happened, obviously. And you can make the uh, uh, argument, which I will for the sake of it, that the embargo now is tighter than it ever was. Obama administration has fined more banks and financial institutions around the world for doing business with Cuba than Bush ever did. Um, so um, uh, the AID, the AID program, still is still is going on despite one of their employees in jail is still going on with, and some of the contracts and you look at the wording of it say a warning you should be sure to warn your people that they could get into trouble in Cuba doing this. So, um, it, it, now, how is that, can, can that be solved? Very easily. Some president has to decide, this doesn't make any sense. This is not uh, doing us any good. And just change. And my own feeling is that the Cubans, because America's importance has decreased, because they are finding friends in other places, um, uh, uh, I see nothing so far from the Obama administration that would lead one to believe that there is reason to believe that a policy will be changed, maybe. Um, but it, again, would not surprise me if four years from now, Five years from now, you have another conference here talking about uh, what are we going to do about the embargo. So with that, I leave you. Thank you for your time, and I'll be glad to take any questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll uh, take Kirby's lead and, and come up here rather than sit there. Thank you very much for uh, having me. Um, I uh, uh, looked around the room uh, earlier and when Kirby asked how many people had been to Cuba and uh, a heck of a lot of hands went up. I, I, I'm Canadian, so I might be maybe one of the few non-Americans here. Um, and of course, I'm used to going to Cuba. I've been going to Cuba for 20 years, probably I've, can't even count the number of times I've been in Cuba and, of course, lived and worked there for, for years as well. But uh, very rarely, certainly when I speak in the United States, is there a room that has so many people who have direct experience with Cuba than here at the University of California at Berkeley. So this was very interesting for me. Um, so which means uh, uh, some of my regular, uh, I have to admit, frustration about talking about Cuba in, in environments where people really don't know much about it at all uh, is probably not the case here. So bear with me if I uh, go through some material here that, uh, that you already all know anyway. I'm delighted to see some old friends, Julie, of course, and Wayne, and 
Paolo, who we've done uh, work together on, and Arturo's here as well, uh, and, and Kirby uh, as well. Um, I was asked to uh, join the panel on uh, economic reforms uh, in Cuba uh, this morning. I'm going to leave to Paolo, my friend here, to talk about hard numbers. Uh, there are very few people around in the business who know a lot, uh, know a lot of the Cuban economic numbers as well as Paolo does, so I, I won't even try to uh, uh, invent them. Uh, I will let, uh, I'll let him uh, handle that. But what I'd like to do uh, with you this morning is maybe step back uh, just a step or two um, and, and, and talk about uh, the nature and really the structure of the Cuban economy. Um, before I think we can get into a discussion of how and to what degree it's being quote unquote reformed. And uh, hopefully at the risk of, uh, of not frustrating any of you in the audience who are economists, um, uh, even before that, and I hope you'll bear with me because you'll, you, you'll see, uh, I think, I'm going to even go back another step or two and offer some uh, kind of baseline sort of personal observations after a long time in, in and around the Cuba issue about the nature of Cuba itself uh, before even getting to the economy. Um, the thing about Cuba, and I've got notes here, and I'll go through them fairly quickly. Um, the thing about Cuba is that everything is kind of interconnected. That's why I, I felt that I want to, I, I need to do some sort of preambular uh, commentary first. And it's a little bit really like a, like a, a rabbit warren uh, when you're entering into a conversation about Cuba. Um, uh, any discussion, in my experience, really needs to be framed because there's a set of of assumptions and ideas that I think you got to kind of, 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 of get out uh, in advance of having a discussion uh, on some of the more specific things. It's it's not a it's not a country that's really prone, in my experience, to treatment in in kind of self-contained silos. And it, I think it's probably one of the most truly integrated and interdisciplinary subjects that could be discussed at a great university campus like this one um, uh, that that certainly I, I've ever seen. And, and that kind of inter, that connectedness of, 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 of discussing Cuba is not uh, because it's necessarily a good thing or a proper, even academic way of presenting it, but because that is the way Cuba is. So uh, rather than observations, maybe in fact my next couple of comments will be more, uh, uh, especially for this audience, uh, in, more in the category of perhaps some, some, some reminders. Uh, firstly, um, there are uh, multiple Cubas, all existing simultaneously. Each one of them is a snapshot. It's equally valid at any given moment. Uh, sometimes, you know, I hear people saying, well, Cuba this and Cuba that. Well, it really does depend to a large degree on which part of that reality or which angle or which facet is catching the sunlight at any given time. Lots of these, these component parts of this kind of kaleidoscopic uh, 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 thing that is Cuba uh, are all, in fact, mutually contradictory. They can all exist simultaneously in, con in, in, in glorious contradiction. Um, as in any country, there are numerous ways in which the Cuban reality and society is cut. There's a rural Cuba, of course, that's light years away from cities like Havana or Cienfuegos. Most foreigners don't get to rural Cuba. It's still the postcard, you know, massive palm trees, little tiny dusty towns and villages, people in horse carts, all that kind of stuff. There are regional divides, the east and the west, very different places. Uh, lots of historical differences. Uh, there's a great central region of, of cowboys and rodeos. Um, there, uh, although it's a very nuanced and complex subject, there are race realities, of course, which in turn spin off very unique 
Cuban religious institutions and practices and, and, and so on. So uh, I, I think it's just important not to caricature Cuba about what Cuba is. It's, it's multiple Cubas. Um, second, uh, so much of the way that we view and, and, and assess Cuba, and, and, and I have to say from my experience, particularly in the United States, because of for the sort of geopolitical reasons and the historical reasons, most of the way we tend to assess Cuba is completely ahistorical. It's as if Cuba, the revolutionary period, had been kind of beamed down from outer space in a Star Trek transporter or some kind of carnival oddity. Um, and, but to really understand the place, uh, you know, one has to take the time to immerse oneself in its history if for no other reason than the current political leadership of the island itself are themselves informed and formed by it. Um, I was trained as a historian uh, academically, so I have to disclose in transparency a bias. But rarely have I seen a national um, experience where the historical context so directly affects the governance of the country. Entire policy options are ruled off the table because of the impact and weight of history, where the experience of the economic and political relationship with the United States, for example, uh, clearly, which can only be described as a hegemony throughout the first six decades of the 20th century, and well before that, too, have created, for example, a hypersensitivity around a sovereignty, national sovereignty issues. Very, very Cuban exist to this day. The experience with the perceived failure of the Russian experience in economic reform and a feeling of betrayal by the Russians uh, at the time uh, uh, from the Perestroika period under Mikhail Gorbachev have served to inculcate an assumption in the leadership of cautious incrementalism as tactic. Third, Cuba is a fusion nation. It's all races, backgrounds, Europeans, Africans, active presence, needless to say, Spaniards, Americans, Russians, all in their time and their place, Arabs, Italians, uh, you name it, all over the years. So a corollary or an outcome of that experience is that the Cubans are cultural assimilators. They will pick and choose elements of experiences and models as they think they may work for them without feeling obliged to adopt entire ideologies or templates or models. They create hybrid Cuban versions of models, and they've been doing this for hundreds of years and still do it. Cuban socialism, for example, in 2012, is a quixotic and quite unique creation that bears no resemblance to any other political experience. So this is why Cuba can float sovereign debt bond instruments on London stock exchanges, accept subsidized oil from Hugo Chavez as Venezuela, trade openly with the United States, and court China for lines of credit all simultaneously without missing a beat and unperturbed about ideological purity. Fourth, let's not forget that Cuba is a poor and developing country with, a, frankly, a troubled past. I believe that the process that you see often in, and, and it's totally understandable why it happens, but the process in, 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 that you see in Cuban communities outside of Cuba uh, where, of, of kind of creating this, um, this sort of nostalgia-wrapped kind of dreamlike version of an idyllic kind of middle-class Cuba that existed before 1959, I think has actually done a disservice to understanding the realities of Cuban economic development. We all know the usual statistics. 
you know, the early adoption of steam trains before Spain back in the 1830s to television in the 50s and then the first half color TV, the highest use of telephones in Latin America, etc., etc. All of that is, was true, 100% true. So when times were good over two centuries in the sugar industry, that allowed the creation of, of cases of great individual wealth and buildings were built and highways constructed, all true. But equally true, and at the same time, the dominance of sugar monoculture distorted the Cuban economy and made the country a historic net importer of all food at great cost. And the, the, this, the, the, the profound implications uh, of these distortions have continued, in fact, uh, to this day. The political culture of the republic was thoroughly and, um, and I think unarguably corrupt to the core. Cuban nationalism was a potent force within the government of Cuba, even by the 1930s. A relatively strong, homegrown, old communist party uh, played a completely open role in Cuban political life for long stretches of time. And Batista even had two communist cabinet ministers in his wartime elected government in the second his government of 1940. So the picture is very nuanced, and, and, and an understanding of Cuba I don't think is advanced by creating myths when all national narratives already have enough myth-making as it is. Lastly, everything in Cuba is, in essence, political. That includes the economy. Policy options are ruled in and out against the background of political considerations and perceptions. For example, in the minds of the Cuban leadership, nothing can be done to create vulnerabilities or court risk in the face of a hostile United States that continues to maintain its unilateral trade and investment embargo. But yet, for them, in a, and here kind of putting on, you know, sort of slightly wearing their hat, in a very kind of curious and quite sort of baffling twist, while the embargo is maintained, which perceived to be quite hostile, the government of the United States wants to talk simultaneously about how U.S. companies can gain market access to the Cuban marketplace. So there's a, 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 a political context. Cuba is a nation and a family divided, but channels of communication must be maintained to the less hostile majority of the community outside Cuba. In their heyday, remittances from family and friends overseas made up perhaps $1 billion um, in financial transfers a year. So national networks of retail stores must be opened, supplied, maintained. Currency exchanges operated. Telephone and mobile systems put in place, even with special offers, thanks, whereby people outside Cuba can deposit money via the internet to the mobile telephone accounts of Cubans on the island. The domestic political agenda in Cuba, and of course Cuba has its domestic politics to be sure, is dominated by the need to do several things, to maintain the availability of electricity, transportation, and food supply in the cities principally. And these are the core priorities of the national economy. So this propels Cuba to do everything from maintaining the relationship with Venezuela uh, related to subsidized oil supply to developing a foreign tourism sector with which to earn hard currency. When I said earlier that there are multiple Cubas existing simultaneously, well, you know, there are also various distinct Cuban economies existing simultaneously as well. I would count at least four different economic constructs 
First, there's the Cuban national economy, which is denominated in Cuban pesos, in which most Cubans live full-time, especially in the countryside and in smaller provincial cities and towns. It's characterized by heavily subsidized utilities, rent, and public transportation when that works and exists, entertainment, free education, basic foodstuffs, that kind of thing. But it has no meaningful retail sector and no consumer goods at all. Then there's a retail sector denominated in convertible pesos, the famous CUCs, the Kook, an equivalent to hard currency. This is where all the consumer goods live. Any Cuban can visit it if they have access to Kooks, either through remittances from overseas or gifts, incentive bonuses from their employer, tips in the tourism sector, and so on. The next Kind of part of the economy is the emerging intra-Cuban professional services sector, also denominated in Kook, where Cuban tradespeople, professional service providers of various kinds, operating under license, operators of the small bed and breakfast establishments that some of you may have stayed in, family-run restaurants, the paladares, <coughs> this is where they all trade their services. It's opened again to all Cubans with, with, with CUCs, which of course is far from universal. But the number of participants in that sector and its activity is growing steadily. It's in this sector which, in theory, will absorb most of the hundreds of thousands of people to be laid off eventually from state enterprises whose salaries and benefits the state can no longer afford. At the policy level, this labor market adjustment could be revolutionary in creating a, a, a new small business sector, the kind of motor of job creation and domestic economic growth in other countries. But there are many challenges in making the transition, even for those willing to, to do it. For example, there is a need, I believe, in Cuba for a national skills training strategy to help people prepare for new jobs. A number of people in this, in this uh, particular sector um, have been legalized for activities they were already doing illegally in the past, and they, uh, they were already skilled workers. So to move the large numbers of people out of state jobs, uh, I think uh, 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 skills training is, is something uh, they'll, they'll need to look at. The licensing process is bureaucratic. Um, perhaps they're, 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 the tax obligations are too onerous that are stifling many of these fledgling businesses right out of the gate. There's the difficulty of finding excuse me, reliable supplies and products necessary to do things like running your hair salon or, or little private bakeries or, or cafes. And then lastly, the, in, the, the, in the, the other part of the main economy is the foreign investment and foreign trade enclave, again, running coup. This includes the tourism sector, all joint business between foreign and Cuban companies, everything from managing hotels to operating mines, developing pharmaceuticals. This sector, of course, is firewalled from the national economy and exists for the purpose of providing access to capital, technology, and know-how in areas of strategic importance where the Cuban state cannot supply such elements by itself. The Cuban approach to direct foreign investment is highly utilitarian, pragmatic, and intended to strengthen the capacity of Cuba Inc. to survive, not to share it with foreigners. Of course, to truly paint the most accurate picture uh, possible, there's also a fifth economy, which is the zone flowing from kind of gray to black, in which unlicensed tradesmen, thank you, provide services under the table for cash, uh, there's moonlight, 
The state fights constantly against pilferage of its assets in the middle of the night, you know, cement disappearing from construction sites, that kind of thing. This is not unique to Cuba, of course, and is analogous to the plumbers and all the home reno folks in North America who will work for cash to avoid having to pay taxes. So this gives a feel sometimes of a kind of an intricate dance choreography as some Cubans move in and out of the different economies and the latter interact with each other. The world of Cuban agriculture is a perfect microcosm of this. Certain proportions of production are earmarked for the tourism sector to act as import substitution, and for which farms are paid directly in hard currency, allowing them to purchase seed and equipment. Strategic partnerships with foreign agriculture are being developed to build an export capacity, and some farms have a dedicated grow operation for that purpose, and others produce for the national domestic market where there have been attempts, and quite successful, to increase food supply to the cities uh, by allowing producers to sell directly at the retail level on the streets of major cities. These farmers' markets and itinerant vendors are islands of supply and demand dynamics on pricing, which allows me to come around to finish off, I think, to discuss a little bit about forecasting Cuban economic reforms uh, uh, which is, is, is uh, a, a part of this panel. I think we need to be very careful about the use of the word reforms. I think it's too far-reaching a word for Cuban reality. I think it leaves the impression of an attempt at a rather fundamental structural transformation. This is a word that we've extrapolated on to Cuba from the outside, and in its wake it creates an expectation gap. And I'll come back to this very quickly in closing. Uh, the series of economic changes have been brought forward over the last 10 years. Julie went through lots of them when she uh, spoke to us. are all intended to do one thing. And, and it, Despite the fact that the Cuban political leadership has admitted their model doesn't really work very well, it's to, in fact, make the, the system work better and to strengthen it. It's not to change it or replace it. That's a critical difference in understanding the nature and the pace of Cuban economic adaptation. It is an incremental work of calibrated adjustment. There are two big themes of Cuban economic development where I think one could perhaps use the word reform in its truer meaning, and these are the 800-pound gorillas in the room that also serve to complicate and slow even attempts at adaptation and adjustment. One is currency reform, and I'll go very quickly through this. You saw earlier the mention of the two currencies. If Cubans are asked what is one of the most vexing problems uh, because it creates uh, uh, economic second-class citizens, it's, it's uh, the, the need to deal with currency reform. Cubans have been talking about this for, for decades, uh, 20 years. Um, it, it is a fundamental structural issue. The other fundamental structural issue is around the psychology of state subsidy. Um, it will take a generation to wean Cubans off off, uh, off state subsidies in a way, and this serves as a fundamental obstacle to Cuban economic policymakers. Uh, I'm happy to come back and, and, uh, and talk about that. Um, and very lastly, in closing, my estimation is that economic adaptation in Cuba will continue exactly as it has, tweaking, adjusting, calibrating. Changes will never be sufficient in themselves to affect the course of relations between the United States and Cuba. This is because of the expectation trap to which I referred earlier. The reality is that the objectives are, of course, profoundly disparate. The United States sees economic reform in Cuba as a test of Cuba's political will to send a message that it has seen the light and wants to reassure the United States that change is on its way. In Cuba, in other words, it's all about your country. 
in Cuba, decisions about the economy have absolutely nothing to do with the United States at all. They're domestic for domestic purposes, uh, for, for a domestic agenda. And in fact, there's even a constituency in Cuba that thinks that Cuba can survive now, by now, six decades later, five decades later, quite well. Um, so economic reform will never be sufficient to be interpreted in Washington as the message because it is not the message, and that's the disconnect. Thank you, everybody. Um, very happy to be here. First time in Berkeley. Um, I'm also very happy to share the stage with so many uh, people who seem to have a genuine interest in Cuba, who have been traveling to Cuba, and also uh, a group of experts that I found very uh, impressive. Um, as you can hear from my accent, I'm not American. So I was born in Italy, born and raised. Um, sometimes, still today, I. Uh, I think about how way less stressful is a nine-hour flight from Milan to Terminal 3 in Havana than a 45-minute flight from Miami to Terminal 2. Uh, every time I arrive, uh, I always think about that. Just to be uh, you know, um, stress-free, the experience, and now I'm much more stressful is going to be. Um, but leaving aside that part, um, what I will talk about today it's the current situation of the Cuban economy. I tried to put not too many numbers. I compressed them into figures, uh, but they are there. Um, and at the end, I will talk about the reforms of our culture, what I think they are leading to. Every time we have to think about um, how Cuban economy is moving forward and what kind of things that are um, taking place in Cuba, we also have to remember at the beginning the list of problems and what is um, what are the kind of uh, major challenges that the Cuban economy is facing? Well, I put there a long list, and the uh, list I would have to single out a few things. Uh, first of all, low productivity across uh, all economic sectors in inefficiency. The issue with wages, real versus nominal wages. The issue of unemployment, which was a problem even before the Cuban government decided to begin to lay off uh, a significant number of people. The dual currency system that has created segmented markets, and, and to the point that it's even difficult and uh, sometimes even impossible in Cuba to figure out whether a single economic sector is profitable or not. Um, and then the liquidity shortages that uh, have been improving uh, over the past few well, year, year and a half, but still are, are significant. In terms of good news, I would say um, Cuba, right now, the Cuban economy is the main source of our currency, our export of professional services, mainly doctors. So we'll be talking about that in a moment. Um, the number of tourists has been going up to 2011, uh, and also the number of revenues. Uh, so there are some good um, aspects to, to emphasize in, ter in economic terms, uh, but obviously the list of promises is quite impressive. Now, overall, the situation with the economy, Cuba experienced a major uh, improvement in the mid-2000, uh, 2005 to 2007, mainly driven by export of professional services. Then we had a deceleration and actually deterioration of the economic situation since then. Um, the problem, in part, 
was the global financial crisis that has affected Cuba as well. Uh, but some of the problems that the Cuban economy is facing are chronic problems. So when you talk about low productivity, little export diversification, the domestic savings and the uh, limited uh, exchange reserves, those are chronic problems. In terms of trade, what Cuba has been doing since 2008, as you can see there from the minus 37 percent uh, decline, um, they curtail imports from abroad. They also curtail lots of state investment that have been uh, taken up uh, in the previous couple of years. Overall, they had a surplus in the past uh, three years. But that surplus is mostly because of actual professional services. And one thing that we have to remember is that those services don't really generate fresher currency in the hands of the government for the most part, since the money is committed to the purchase of oil from Venezuela. Um, there is some money, uh, but the vast majority is not uh, fresh cash. And also one thing that I, want, that I put there in parentheses is the re-exportation of oil products. Um, if you take a look at the statistics, you will see uh, that there has been a significant um, uh, increase of oil export. Um, at the beginning, 2008, when it was first reported, many people thought about the refinery in Cienfuegos, and indeed the, uh, the economic figures were showing an increase in oil refinery. Uh, but if you look at from 2008 until 2010, that has remained stagnant. So there's no doubt that a significant amount of money Cuba is receiving from Venezuela is also re-exported under a uh, special arrangement with that country. Then, this will give you an idea how the Cuban economy uh, is mainly composed today. You can see the other services uh, uh, share of the pie. It's more than half. Those are mostly doctors and, and professional services. At some point in the early 2000s, tourism was almost 40%. Today is less uh, than 16. And the other goods, the 17% that you see there, is, is oil. Sugar, less than 2%. Tobacco, 1.4%. Pharmaceuticals have been growing, but still uh, quite uh, negligible. Now, as I was saying before, most of the money is committed to the purchase of oil. So in terms of building the currency reserves, Cuba must rely on nickel export, tourism, remittances, in order to do that. Then, um, I only have a few of those figures, but just at the beginning to, to understand the, uh, the nature of the promise. Agricultural production is a major problem in Cuba. Um, Raul Castro has made agriculture the top of his uh, list of things to change. And indeed, uh, most of the reforms have been uh, in the agricultural sector. But even if, the, if those reforms have been implemented, it might be too early, but uh, certainly it doesn't look good that the uh, agricultural production has been declining despite those reforms. Cuba imports more than 60% of the food it consumes. And if you look at the ration stores, it's even more than that, it's 70 80%. And there is no doubt that the private farmers tradition have been more effective and, and efficient than the state farmers in agriculture, uh, less land producing more, and vice versa. Then, the industry in Cuba mostly disappeared in the 90s and still has not recovered today. The output of manufacturing industry was about half in 2011, as it was in 1989, and mostly was because of consumer goods. If you look at equipment, practically it's disappeared, and intermediate goods is one-third of what it was in 2011. So. The manufacturing industry of Cuba has been declining not only uh, over the past few years, but there was a, a general trend since the early 90s. Then, this one also important in terms of wages. 
If you look at the, um, the gap between nominal and real, price, and real salaries and nominal and real pensions, it's astonishing. A, a real salary today in 2011 is about one-fourth of what it was in 1989, meaning that's the purchasing power that Cubans have in their own pockets, one-fourth of what they had in 2011, unless they have other ways, of course, to, to have access to, to our currency. Pension, about one-half. Um, in the end, many Cubans have to rely on convertible pesos, and there are a variety of ways through which they can access, access uh, convertible pesos, uh, either through remittances or tips, uh, and other ways, even incentive payments on the part of the government. So at the end, there's no doubt that this is a major problem that has to be addressed. Then unemployment. Well, there used to be figures until uh, 98 that this guy's unemployment was about 25% in Cuba meaning people formally employed, but really they don't work or they sub-work. Um, that number practically is the same number of people that all countries laying off right now. Meaning uh, 12 years later, we are still uh, talking about a, uh, more or less a 25% disguise unemployment in Cuba. Even though the official unemployment rate has been very low, 1%, 2%, or 3%. The other part is that all of this is taking place at the time that the Cuban economy is aging rapidly. So not only you have a high rate of disguised unemployment, you also have a high rate of people over 60. Um, I put together 20 years, time has doubled. 11.8% uh, in 1990, today we are 18.1%. And that number is going to become even higher uh, in the next few years and decades. <coughs> then the last thing, productivity. Um, even the Cubans have come to terms with the fact that productivity is related to real salaries. You cannot raise simply the nominal salary and expect people to work more and to produce more. So something has to be done in order to uh, address this problem of low productivity related also to a low uh, real salary. I put this uh, figure for a reason, even though it might be confusing the second part, you can see the drop in the 1989-93 period. They kept the nominal salaries unchanged, but the real salary dropped, and productivity also dropped. And also, if you look at the, uh, the rate of growth since 2004, you practically will see the real salary and productivity are growing at the same rate. Now, if we talk about reforms in Cuba, we have to uh, remember not only what was happening in the 70s and 80s, but what was happening right before the reforms were implemented. 2003 to 2005, there was a, uh, a process of recentralization of the Cuban economy, which in a way is consistent with what was happening always before. In Cuba, always when the economy improves, the government retreats. When the economy is going down, the government opens. That's why I have to say that um, in terms of reforms, what is happening right now actually are quite different in nature. Not only... Uh, for the kind of things they're doing, but really the way they are doing that, the reasons they're doing that, seem to be very different. And I also want to say a couple of things, leaving aside all those um, list um, of things that I, that I put there, um, just to give you a sense of the economic recentralization process. What if Fidel Castro would be still today the president of Cuba? Would we have all those things that are going on right now under Raul? Not only that, what if Fidel Castro would have fell, fallen ill two years later, not in 2006, in 2008. This process stopped in 2006, but the economy was performing relatively well back then, which makes me think that 
we might have had another couple of years of decentralizing measure until the crisis would have hit Cuba, and then, of course, the government would have decided to do reforms, different kind of reforms, not the ones that are taking place right now. So I'm thinking that we have to remember uh, that the point of departure of, of Raul Castro's reforms is actually, uh, in a way, worse than if it would have happened in 93, 94, when the Cuban government was opening uh, the economy for different reasons. But they never liked doing that. Right now, you don't hear Raul Castro say, well, uh, we are opening, uh, we want more foreign investment, but we really don't like it. Uh, we want to uh, um, give away the land uh, to farmers, but we really don't want to do that. So now you, you hear a different political message coming out of Cuba, also because the nature of the reforms is different and less, I would say, conjunctural than it used to be done before. So the reforms are there to stay. They're slow. Everybody agrees on that. Everybody agrees they're insufficient. But we have to put them in perspective just to give them uh, more credit than they ever received. So the reforms are here, briefly, mostly in agriculture. A new state land in use of to private farmers and cooperatives, decentralization in general, um, the supply stores for, for farmers were open, the microcredits to new farmers were made available, the prohibition also that had been lifted in Cuban society are important. Um, a few things that I want to mention. The state subsidies have been decreasing quite significantly. The Cuban government finally has realized that certain social programs uh, are unsustainable in the long run. Um, and also the, the links with the private sector are, are increasing. So um, overall, these kind of reforms, yes, as Kirby said, things were happening in the 90s. But this one are with a different flavor and with a different rationale behind them. In fact, this one have a, um, a pace of their own as compared to the one in the 90s. And when the economy started to recover, they practically retrenched. Nowadays, if anything, is happening the opposite. So some of the things that were um, called for in the lineamentos that were approved in 2011, what has happened and what has not happened. Number one in the list, more autonomy to state firms. One of the problems with state firms in Cuba, they are inefficient notoriously, and they have low production. That is one thing that has to change, is the environment in which enterprises in Cuba operate. Not only in terms of controls from higher level, uh, putting all kind of restriction in what they can or cannot do. Um, but also a different kind of, of business environment that has to be created uh, for state enterprise in Cuba in order for them to prosper. And of course, the lineamentos were calling for more autonomy in deciding the number of persons, using the profits, uh, uh, stimulate the workers. Something is taking place there, uh, but it's still a long shot. Creation of non-farm cooperatives. At the end of 2012, the Cuban government has announced there will be 200-something new cooperatives in transportation, food, uh, services, and so forth. That is the first time that outside of agriculture they are promoting uh, cooperatives. So something has happened there, um, but not yet. Second degree cooperatives, which have been um, pushed for. Nothing in that regard, and it doesn't seem that it's going to happen anytime soon. Modification of Decree Law 259 is the decree law that allowed uh, the uh, redistribution of land to farmers. One of the problems that they are discussing is the land lease terms. So now you get a lease of 10 years, 
no matter what kind of products you are harvesting. Um, the new debate is about, well, we should make those land uh, lease terms different across uh, uh, the different products just because the cycle of those products might be different. Um, Promotion for investment. Well, before, the wholesale market. Well, I will talk about that in a moment because the uh, latest regulation on, on custom duties in Cuba created all kinds of um, criticism from abroad and in Cuba. But the promotion for investment. Well, I am not that um, enthusiastic and optimistic about foreign investment for a reason. Well, the Cuban government say, well, we have to accept more and more foreign investment. If you look at the figures, actually, there's been a huge decline over the past few years. If anything, even uh, joint venture with Venezuela have not moved forward. So right now in Cuba, you have a, a couple of big projects, but in terms of association, joint venture with foreign capital, they've been declining. So some might say, well, it's a result of the corruption campaign that Cuba has waged. Yes, in part. Also, uh, I'm sure they have to do way more in, in order to be successful in attracting significant amounts of investment. Um, and then the, uh, the migration law allowing Cuba to travel abroad as tourists, that has been announced and then has been uh, put on hold and now has been announced again. Um, so we don't know whether it's going to happen or not at this time. So to conclude, I have to say that when I look at the reforms, I can find the positive. First of all, slow process, no doubt, but there has not been, there's not been any backtracking since 2006, meaning whatever they're doing, they're moving in one direction. And 2006 until 2012, uh, there have been six years, there have been plenty of time eventually to backtrack on something. So at least you have a one direction process. That again, it's a slow process, it's sufficient, but at least it's one direction. The other part, um, if you look at the lineament to approve, you will see there that it will say it will dominate the uh, planning and not the market. But then again, the market is there. So for the first time, they finally recognize that there's a role for the market, a meaningful role, to be played in the Cuban economy. So you can look at that from a positive uh, standpoint. In general, the way that the reforms have been implemented, they clearly show that the managing of the economy is different than it was before. There's a different mind behind it. Um, and the one that are really structural in terms of systemic reforms, the agricultural one, the self-employment promotion, and the housing reforms. When Raul Castro, the first major speech in 2007, called for structural reforms, everybody thought, well, he's talking about dismantling the system. We know by now that he didn't really mean that, uh, but there are some reforms that have a structural character, uh, and they should be pointed out. Then why is I'm putting there sluggish economic growth is slowing down the process? Because this is exactly what was not happening before. Every time you had economic problems, if anything, the reforms were picking up just to be retrenched upon later. Right now, what you have instead is that you have a slow process. And indeed, I would argue, the economic problems that Cuba is facing are slowing down the reforms rather than making them faster. All right. The last few things that I want to mention. The assessment of those reforms are less, uh, more of a um, problematic nature. Cuba has made clear the accumulation of private property will not be allowed. So we do know that that is not what is expecting Cuba, uh, at least under Raul Castro. The issue of state firms and how much they can be autonomous from the state has been debated. Um, 
several things have happened. But overall, I would say there still remains quite unclear how they can coexist with, uh, with censor plan. Now, the last couple of things that I want to mention. Well, Cuba so far has done the easy part, which is to allow people to do what they were already doing. <laughs> yes. The difficult part is now to find the jobs for those who want to lay off from the state government and rehire them somewhere else. That's the difficult part. So that's why the process is slowing down right now. Because the first part was moving fast because it was easy. The second part, it entails all kind of promises. And uh, realistically, um, Raul Castro is not the only one who decides everything in Cuba. There's also a lot of internal resistance. Many people have a stake in the system. So what is taking place so far is really to figure out how we can move to stage two in a way that will preserve the system, but at the same time will give job to all the people that will be laid off from the state sector. That is the key issue so far uh, that Cuba has not addressed properly. Um, finally, um, they have to realize one thing. If you want to have a higher production, you want to have a higher real salary, you have to liberalize the market. You have to, in a way, reduce the role of the state and give market mechanisms more uh, emphasis. There's no other way around. You can still preserve the system. And there are significant aspects of the system that should be preserved. But also, you should be realistic enough to understand, well, if we want to tackle the problem from a productivity standpoint, we have to make uh, a concession to the market that we have not been willing to do so far. OK, thank, thank you very you. much. I'm assuming that some of you will have questions that will be posed to our Uh, since I only have a few in hand at the moment, let me start with what I've got. Okay. What can Cuban companies do with their 65% profit share? I guess I brought that up. Um, they create business plans, which are presented to the management. Um, and in that business plan, just like any other company, they, they um, have a certain amount of money they can plow back in, into the business. Um, and so it, I don't know the specifics of the sugar industry, but in uh, other companies, other the other travel companies, and there's there's Coupet in the energy sector, and there's there's um, companies in every sector, and they get those business plans approved, counting on uh, a certain amount of projected profit, and counting on so much gets paid in taxes to or to the shareholder, and so much gets plowed back into the business to expand it and make it better. Okay. Why are there two currencies? Perhaps a brief history of the uh, convertible peso versus the national currency would be helpful. Well, the convertible peso was introduced in 1994. Um, for many years, it was circulating alongside with the U.S. dollar. In 2004, the, U the Cuban government stopped the circulation of the U.S. dollar, meaning right now in Cuba, if you go with dollars, you have to exchange them for convertible peso in order to uh, purchase the product you need. Um, but in 94, was created that currency was tied to the dollar, pegged to the dollar. Uh, 
at the worst time of the economic crisis. At some point, they always had in mind that they were going to bridge the gap between the convertible peso and the regular peso. But that has not happened. How, why has not happened? Because Cuba cannot support a different exchange rate. There's a reason why the convertible peso in Cuba is 24 or 25 uh, Cuban peso, because the local production cannot sustain a different exchange rate. So at the same time you tackle productivity problem, you will also be able to bridge the gap between the two currencies. Can I add one? Sure. One, one thing to that. When I first started going, you you uh, were not allowed to have dollars. You changed dollars into into the local currency. The the use of the dollar or hard currency was illegal. Uh, along comes 94, 95, the opening up to tourism, and the tourists arrive with hard currency. And so it began floating all around, so they legalized something which was already there. Then comes the... the, the uh, Cutting off of the use of the dollar, the late 90s, early 2000s, you, could, you were spending dollars. Why was that? What Powell says is correct, but there's another reason. In the U.S. embargo, it's illegal for Cuba to use the dollar for international financial transactions. And so there, eventually, all those dollars got into the hands of the government, one way or another. But the government couldn't use them. So there was a penalty put on the exchange rate of dollar. If you're gonna if you're gonna make it illegal for us and we have to change dollars into euros and then euros into something else, we're gonna jack up the exchange rate. So again that is not why it's the marriage of the currencies has to happen one day, but uh, that's part of the reason how that all developed. Okay. I'll use following on uh, 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 the earlier presentation, I'll use my prerogative to ask this, we'll put this question to the top. What is the cause of the huge drop in agricultural production? Paolo. Uh, well, you would ask me, Cubans would tell you too much state in, into that. Um, there's a problem with distribution, there's a problem with uh, supplies, there's a problem with, um, with exchange rate. In general, it's a structure that is heavily dominated by the state. If anything, the state, if there's one sector where it should be actually retreating, that is indeed agriculture. And everybody has, in Cuba, um, argued the same thing. You cannot keep a system, agricultural system, so heavily controlled by the state in terms of distribution, in terms of production. Um, even when the Cuban government uh, distributed all the land, in Cuba, at some point, 70% of the arable land was under the marabou uh, weed. Well, you're given the land, but you don't have the tools, first of all, not even to clean the land before you start eventually to produce in a long run. Uh, and then it comes to all other restrictions in terms of quota that you have to meet for the state before you can even start to sell uh, in the free farmer's market. So I guess all that structure has to be dismantled, but it takes a long time to dismantle the structure that's been in place for a long time. So I think the direction of the Cuban general agriculture, I would say, um, is symptomatic of what is taking place in Cuba at a more general level. Um, things are moving in one direction, but it takes a long time to dismantle all that system. So China, Vietnam, they started from somewhere. So at some point, the reforms picked up, but at the beginning, they started from agriculture. Cuba is doing the same. So I guess uh, that was my answer. Thank you. Okay. For uh, Mark, 
As recently as July, most informed Cubans I spoke with were more concerned about dem the demographic, demographic problem of, aging, of the aging population and loss of working age sector than about most other issues mentioned here. Can you expand on this? Yeah, uh, <clears throat> that's a good point. Um, Cuba is an aging society, um, uh, and I think a lot of Cubans of a certain generation um, are... Uh, um, I'm quite understandably very concerned about uh, their future um, uh, in a old age security and pension um, uh, context where the state is in fact um, uh, increasingly unable to provide so the social safety net. Um, and and it, it is a, it is a, a, a profound demographic challenge uh, in Cuba, um, the, an aging population. It's also, a, a, it, it, to be absolutely blunt as well, it's, uh, for those of you who go, you know, um, Cubans are, are highly educated, they're smart, but they're also now profoundly fatigued and tired <laughs> as, a, as a society. They've been through a lot of stuff, and a lot of these changes that Paolo's talking about carry with them huge amounts of personal stress. That half million to a million um, workers who are supposed to be laid off from uh, the, the, state, uh, the state payroll, um, uh, this has caused profound uh, uh, personal, family, community, and social stress in Cuba as people wonder how they're going to make the, make the adaptation. So it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an issue, absolutely. Okay. This isn't directed to any one of you in particular, so any of you can comment. Do you foresee the emergence of any hybrid enterprise strategies unique to Cuba? Don't all answer at once. Uh, no, I can make a quick comment. Um, I don't think there's going to be a hybrid system, um, but every economist in Cuba has been arguing for the same thing. You must have a different exchange rate in the business sector to begin with. Um, that issue of the, of the uh, double uh, exchange rate, why is so important? Because many times companies in Cuba cannot really figure out whether they are profitable or not. And if you cannot figure out that, you can also not figure out what kind of strategy you can do to improve things. So at the end, they will have to start with the exchange rate in the business sector, then move to a, a unified exchange rate for the population. But for the time being, in the, um, in the business sector, different exchange rate, and also more autonomy, real autonomy for state firms to decide what to do with the money and the profits they make. So those two things will happen. I don't think if they will operate in a vacuum, they will make them uh, in a completely different system. But that will happen eventually if they're going to be serious about tackling the particular problem. It depends how you define hybrid. Uh, you can make the argument that Cuba in and of itself in its entirety is a hybrid because nothing quite like it has happened. It is totally unlike the process that happened in Bulgaria and Romania and the Czech Republic and Slovakia. It's totally different what happened in the republics of, of, the, of the Soviet Union. It's totally different than what anything has happened in, in Latin America. Um, people say, well, is it going to be like China? Is it going to be like Vietnam? And the Cubans say, no, we're going to be Cuba. I think that's true, um, that it's going to be a hybrid uh, political system it's going to be a hybrid economic and financial system, uh, and there are going to be bumps in the road on the way. Remember, you're taking a country that is, for 100 years, has lived something different. 
and you're asking them to do something totally new to change the mindset of lots of people, including uh, the, the elderly who are worried about how they're going to live out, including the younger generation who wants to be architects. Where am I going to get a job as an architect? Because I can't get it. Now, that young architect, that counterpart in rural Mexico doesn't have that problem because the counterpart in rural Mexico never went to school to be an architect because he couldn't afford it. So which problem do you want to have? So you're dealing in hybrids, I think, at every level. And what makes Cuba so interesting is that we're watching this process unfold right, right in front of us. What is the role of the Cuban Chamber of Commerce? Uh, yeah, the Cuban. Uh, Welcome, wagon agency. Yeah, the the, the chamber. Uh, it, uh, uh, um, well, it's got two fundamental roles. One one is it's a it's a state agency. Um, it, it's quite a functional kind of legalistic body. Actually, it's the repository of incorporation, uh, essentially for uh, foreign businesses with re either representative offices in Cuba or have jo joint venture arrangements. Um, uh, it is a um, really a registration office uh, in in many ways. Um, uh, it does not do what chambers of commerce do in North America in terms of promoting economic development and that kind of thing. Um, it's not a membership based organization. It's it's the registry office for incorporation uh, uh, essentially, and it plays uh, and it also plays a generalized kind of enforcement role. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis the conduct of foreign business in the country. What proportion of the Cuban workforce is employed by foreign firms that have invested in Cuba, and how much of that is in tourism? Less than one percent. Working twenty-seven. The last number: twenty-seven thousand people working for joint ventures. Yeah. So less than one percent. Um, a few years ago, I remember something came out uh, about. Um, Allowing uh, hard currency convertible peso incentives um, for um, foreign companies in Cuba, but that particular resolution, by the way, when it came out, was about embassies uh, and other kind of uh, foreign enterprises, not to join ventures. In Cuba, still join ventures, they get under the money, under the table money, uh, in, in, in convertible pesos, in order to be stimulated to do to do work, more work. Regardless, everybody in Cuba, especially in tourism, would rather work for a joint venture than working for a state company. You're much closer to hard currency. You get tips uh, or kind of uh, bonuses that you can get, not minus bonuses, but still, that will make a difference in Cuba's life. But in terms of employment, uh, less than 1%, and if you only... In tourism, we have to consider one thing. And many um, enterprises in the tourism sector are not joint ventures, are management mm -hmm. contracts. Right. So the government is really the owner of the, of the land, the hotel, and the companies only earns profit out of management fees. And there is a common way that has been uh, uh, done across uh, in the tourism sector. And one thing that I want to mention, uh, uh, since we have a Canadian, in Cuba there are one million Canadians right now going every year. There's not a single Canadian company managing a hotel in Cuba. Correct. Okay. In July of this year, a series of announcements were placed in Grandma, noting uh, your health care is free. Yes, your health care is free, but it, this is what it costs. What does what does this discussion say about the next steps in Raul's reforms in the area of health care? 
Well, I'll start that. What this is doing, this kind of thing is the beginning of a very long process of, of, of uh, sort of uh, public outreach, so to speak, and education um, uh, on the part of the, uh, of the Cuban government um, to start the conversation about the social costs of subsidization, about the welfare state, and about the ultimate um, requirement to um, begin to dismantle um, uh, the array of state subsidies that uh, th that the state can no longer afford to provide. This is a painful discussion. Um, this is one of the obstacles that slows the kinds of economic adjustment that, that Paolo uh, uh, has been talking about. Um, very common, you know, in, in Cuba, even Cubans who, whose message is, uh, you know, government, get out of my face, uh, you know, give us economic space, let us build our own companies, businesses, let us, you know, in, in employ our families and all of this kind of stuff. But we do not want to pay any taxes. Thank you very much. We want free health care. We want free education. And so uh, it's understandable. And uh, we're now into multiple generations uh, with a set of expectations. The government has been very clear it can no longer afford to do this. The um, announced proposals of the mass layoffs is all part of the same general uh, as I mentioned earlier, could in principle be quite revolutionary labor force adjustment. And part of that is to, st is to also start to dismantle the welfare state psychology, uh, which all Cubans have from top to bottom in every walk of life. Very typically Cuban and very non-typical American uh, in the sense that uh, uh, the Tea Party people have something very uh, similar to what he just mentioned the Cubans said. The Tea Party says, get the government out of my life, but don't touch my Social Security and Medicare. Um, um, but secondly, you go back to the late 90s, early 2000s, when the prospect of American food products arriving in Cuba, you will go back and see statements by Fidel, uh, references by Fidel, articles in Grandma about U.S. products and agriculture. It's a classic way that the Cubans have of throwing something out there to begin the education process, begin the dialogue, uh, so that nobody is taken by surprise. Uh, which doesn't mean necessarily that it's all going to happen or th there's no way to predict the date when it will happen, but it is an indication that someday something will change that is being discussed now. They have also introduced uh, payment for utilities, phone bills, electricity. Small, they're tiny, tiny in comparison to what we pay, the gouging that goes on of our, our service providers. But uh, um, they, 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 this is part of the whole process. One quick comment. Uh, we have to remember that one out of five, if not more, Cuban doctors are not in Cuba right, right now. So obviously there's an uh, urge to, to rationalize healthcare in Cuba because now you have less doctors um, attending more people, and the way the people have always been accustomed, Cuba had one of the highest, if not the highest, rate of doctors per patient in the world. But that rate right now doesn't really apply to the number of doctors that remains in Cuba. So now they are re-rationalizing uh, the entire healthcare system, also making people understand that if, we, if they do make changes, people will be uh, living under that system that will be created. So they also have to change the way they live. Correct. This is a nice segue to the afternoon session, which is about politics and social development. So I will close this here. Let me just say there's an interest. A number of people uh, sent up notes saying, will the PowerPoint presentations be made available? So 
Yeah, I have to say no, unfortunately, um, because it's coming. I have a book coming out, and the material is practically all part of the book. But I'll be happy Buy to send you bits and, <laughs> bits and pieces of information. If you're interested in one particular slide or figure, I can I can make it available to you. I do not have a book. <laughs> Anybody so, wants sorry, it, but have it. I mean, so um, perhaps just contact our really panelists <laughs> if you are interested in any of the slides. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.